Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, the Supreme Court upholds Donald Trump's travel ban and liberals are hysterical. Opioids can be weaponized. I'm going to tell you all about it. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. And last night's primaries yielded some interesting results. Most interesting, a socialist unseated a 10-term incumbent congressman in New York City. Liberals are losing their minds as the Supreme Court upholds Trump's travel ban. Now, I mean, they've really become unhinged. Twitter and Facebook apparently graduated law schools yesterday, and they're all explaining why brilliant, giant legal minds like John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch, uh, uh, Samuel Alito, are wrong. Apparently, the, the Twitter law school graduates know better. Supreme Court upheld the ban, and it was no surprise because the president's authority on immigration is, is well, pretty absolute. That's really never been in dispute. Now, uh, CNN is predictably trying to do an objective analysis. I love uh, going to CNN for these stories. They start it with, the ruling was 5-4 along partisan lines. Well, yeah, the liberals on the court ignored the law. The conservatives led by John Roberts followed the law with Chief Justice John Roberts writing for the conservative majority. Now, We've long known, we, we've, we've quoted the United States Code on this. The United States Code, I'll paraphrase, it essentially gives the president the power to approve or deny anyone's admission to the United States. But liberals don't like the black and white rule of law. They just don't like it. They've never liked it. They want uh, uh, to rule, to govern on a motion. They want judges to rule. Our, our, our elected representatives don't rule, they govern. They represent. Judges hand down rulings. And they want both. They want the elected representatives and the executive and the legislature to govern on a motion. They want judges to rule on a motion when all three should be governing and ruling on law, which is exactly what is going on. Now, when, when the Trump administration, when any administration looked at these proposals, Trump administration deployed this proposal of a travel ban from predominantly Muslim countries, but not only Muslim countries, because North Korea is one of the countries named in the travel ban. But this is not a Muslim ban. Okay, the countries are Venezuela. Venezuela is one of the countries named, uh, a predominantly Christian nation. This is not a Muslim ban. So the nations, the seven nations of concern that were listed in the ban were Venezuela, Libya, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Somalia, North Korea. Only five of them predominantly Muslim nations, Libya, Syria, Iran, <clears throat> Yemen, and Somalia. Venezuela and North Korea were not. So the, the liberal narrative of Muslim ban was debunked at the outset. Now, Trump was uh, predictab predictably very, very happy. John Roberts wrote in his, uh, in his uh, uh, majority opinion for the conservatives, quote, the proclamation is squarely within the scope of presidential authority. And, and the, the, the statutes and the case law on immigration made, made that clear. President Trump tweeted immediately after the ruling came down in capital letters, Supreme Court upholds Trump travel ban. Ow. It seems like the president didn't expect the travel ban to be upheld. The president thought they were going to strike it down. The president also wrote that the uh, ruling was, quote, a tremendous victory for the American people in the Constitution 
The ruling is also a moment of profound vindication following months of hysterical commentary from the media and Democratic politicians who refuse to do what it takes to secure our border and our country. And the president's right. Now, this was the third iteration of the ban, right? This was the, uh, the, the previous ones that bounced back and forth through the courts. Now, an unintended consequence of the Supreme Court's ruling is that it further calls into question and it further questions the credibility of Mueller's investigation. Well, how can that be? Well, how am I getting from the travel ban to Mueller's investigation? Well, pretty simply and in a pretty straight line. If you recall, when Sally Yates was acting attorney general, big never Trumper, a hold into the last administration, she refused to uphold the travel ban and Trump fired her. And there was tremendous backlash on the left. Trump firing Sally Yates. Well, the Supreme Court vindicated Trump. Sally Yates was wrong. Trump was right. The travel ban was legal and constitutional. Sally Yates' refusal to carry it out was a defiance of authority. It was, it was a, a failure to direct and obey order, a legal lawful order from her boss. She should have been fired. More importantly, Andrew Weissman, who's Mueller's number two, his deputy, he's chief prosecutor, chief bulldog, Andrew Weissman's guy profiled on the show. He uh, has had decades of problems with exculpatory evidence, been spanked down by many judges. It's all public record. Andrew Weissman wrote to Sally Yates at the time and said, I'm in awe. I'm so proud. Things like that about her defying Trump. This is the guy who is really Mueller's chief operations officer. This is the guy who's really the He's the Andrew McCabe or the Rod Rosenstein of the Mueller investigation, the very active and proactive number two prosecutor. He was in awe and proud of Sally Yates, who defied Trump by refusing to carry out a lawful constitutional order to uphold the travel ban, something the United States Supreme Court did. Just one more nail in the coffin of Mueller's investigation. Now, uh, I'm going to read for a couple of uh, details from the CNN piece. Challengers, including the state of Hawaii, argued that the travel ban exceeded the president's authority under immigration law constitution. They also used Trump's statements during the campaign when he called for a ban on travel from all Muslim-majority countries. But Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, dismissed those concerns. Roberts says, quote, Plaintiffs argue that this president's words strike at fundamental standards of respect and tolerance in violation of our constitutional tradition. But the issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements. It is instead the significance of those statements in reviewing a presidential directive, neutral on its face, addressing a matter within the core of executive responsibility. In doing so, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. In other words, the legal and constitutional authority of the presidency far outweighs any statement an individual president makes. You can't scrap the historical authority of the presidency. It's been there since the late 1700s, <clears throat> and it'll be there long after we're all gone. You don't toss that out for the statements at a rally, extemporaneous, off the cuff, of one president for one brief, and I mean a few seconds, a few minutes, time in history. And that's what I meant when I said earlier, the left wants governing and rule on emotion. 
on, on changing hundreds, if not thousands of years of legal precedent. If this nation goes on for thousands of years, the left would have wanted policy, law fundamentally changed for a split millisecond in time. Luckily, the conservatives on the court saw how asinine that was and didn't succumb to it. Now, uh, CNN Supreme Court analyst Stephen Vladek, and he's a law professor at University of Texas School of Law, called the ruling a big win for the White House. He said, quote, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed the president's sweeping statutory authority when it comes to deciding who may and who may not travel to the United States, something that's long been established and understood. It's only because of Trump derangement syndrome that that was called into question. Authority that both President Trump and future presidents, future as a CNN analyst, and future presidents will surely rely upon to justify more aggressive immigration restrictions. Now, CNN, of course, had a caveat by saying, well, remember, this is the third iteration of the band and they had to make significant changes. But when you review the first two iterations, the changes weren't all that significant. There were minor tweaks. There were minor, minor tweaks. Now, an interesting byproduct of this case was that the Korematsu decision was overturned. Now, if you don't know what Korematsu was, Korematsu was a decision in, in 1944 in which the court upheld the constitutionality of internment camps for Japanese Americans. Yeah. See, the Supreme Court <clears throat> upheld that back then. And, and who instituted that policy? Who deployed those internment camps? Well, none other than liberal icon Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In fact, there was a great irony on, on Twitter and that a far left writer, I, I forget his name now, I'm going to dig back through a thousand tweets, who was excoriating Trump and excoriating the court. And, and he was railing about the only good thing the, the uh, court did was strike down Korematsu. Well, at his Twitter header picture, it was FDR. So he was excoriating the United States for Korematsu while he had a, he was, he was glorifying the guy that actually put the policy in a place, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And this is the first time, the first time in which the Supreme Court ever struck down a pre-existing decision like this. Now, Sonia Sotomayor, far lefty on the court, wrote a, a scathing dissent. Let me read you part of it. Quote, the majority here, which means on the court, completely sets aside the president's charge statements about Muslims as irrelevant. That holding erodes the foundational principles of religious tolerance that the court elsewhere has so emphatically protected. And it tells members of minority religions in our country that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. That's not true, though. That's absolutely not true. As I said, the, uh, the broader decision here was presidential authority. What that authority was long before Donald Trump said those words for a couple of minutes and what that authority will be long after Donald Trump is out of office, long after all of us are gone from this planet. Court made exactly the right decision here. They followed the rule of law. Now, of course, it, there, there's always one. There's always one. So a few hours after that happened, a federal judge had to get his name in the news, a federal judge in Texas, I'm sorry, in California. And uh, Dana Sabra in San Diego ruled that the U.S. Border Patrol has to stop separating families at the border and has to reunite all families within 30 days. Now, this guy's a Bush appointee. He also ruled that the administration has to provide phone contact 
between parents and children if possible within 10 days. <clears throat> he wrote, this Judge Sabra in California, quote, the facts set forth before the court portray reactive governance responses to address a chaotic circumstance of the government's own making. Well, this isn't true. And I do not suspect this judge's ruling, well, probably will stand up on appeal because of the liberal, the liberal um, courts of appeals, but if this made it to the Supreme Court, I believe their current ruling would supersede this ruling because they've given the president very broad latitude. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Spoke to many about this uh, uh, actually this morning, the three, not many, but three of the most knowledgeable I know. And they feel this ruling flies in the face of the Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court ruling gives the president authority over immigration, over law enforcement, over those policies. And there is case upon case, thousands upon that, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases here in the U.S. of children being separated from their parents when the parent is incarcerated. We've gone over that ad nauseum. And so this judge, it appears, just wants to throw their hat in the ring as a voice of immigration, wanted to get their name out there in the press. I don't see this, anything in this judge's ruling that could really hold water, nor did the attorneys I spoke to and one ICE agent I spoke to. But yesterday was not only a big win for Donald Trump, not only a big win for the Trump administration and the Department of Homeland Security, it was a massive win for the United States of America and our sovereignty when the Supreme Court upheld Trump's travel ban and the absolute, and I'm going to call it absolute authority of the presidency, no matter who the president is, to decide who can and cannot enter this country. Now, we hear a lot about opioids and their scary, scary substances. You're hearing about overdoses, a nationwide epidemic. It really is. It really is. People are overdosing. First responders are overdosing via contact. But we, we typically think of the opioid crisis in that context, right? People who are getting addicted to these drugs that are overdosing, getting very sick, dying, costing money uh, with, with regards to detox and continuing treatment, rehab, things of that nature. We don't think about opioids as weapons. Yeah, weapons. And I'm going to read you a couple of, uh, we'll bring you a couple of really scary accounts. Now, out of Houston, Texas, Harris County, fentanyl-laced flyers were placed on Harris County Sheriff's Office patrol cars. A sergeant who was leaving for the day had her take-home police vehicle removes the flyer from the window. We all do that. Every single one of us has gotten a flyer or a postcard or something on our windshield or in our side window, and we typically remove it and throw it in the garbage or crumple it up and throw it in the car until we can throw it away somewhere or we litter. <laughs> I don't like to do that though. Uh, but um, we never give that a second thought, right? We don't think we're putting going to put on rubber gloves, nor did this sergeant as she was getting ready to go home for the day after a long shift. It looks like a detective because where these flyers were placed on about 15 to 20 police vehicles was at the Harris County Sheriff's Office at Houston, Texas area. Harris County Sheriff's Office Recruitment and Criminal Investigation Building. So there are detectives and those who recruit new deputies, civilians into the police department. To me, that seems like a very symbolic placement of those, a more high-profile unit. So like the rest of us do, she's going home from work. She removes this fly. She soon starts to feel lightheaded and starts showing effects of some kind of uh, um, exposure. Later determined to be fentanyl when the flyer was tested. She was lightheaded. Now, she was rushed to the hospital. They caught it early enough. She was treated. She was released. She's okay. Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez says the, that one flyer that was tested, the one she touched, did test positive for fentanyl. 
15 to 20 others were sent off to the Harris County Crime Lab, their forensic uh, center, for testing. The group that uh, did this, it promoted an organization, Flyers were promoting an organization called Targeted Individuals. And this organization believed that the deep state targets certain people that the FBI and the CIA get together in these darkly lit rooms and target certain individuals who criticize the deep state via microwave beams to the head and all these other crazy things that cause brain damage. Now, if that were the case, I'd be long gone. I criticize the deep state every day, but I tell you what the deep state really is. It's not this conspiratorial, dimly lit room. It's the annoying people at the Department of Motor Vehicles who have you wait for three hours. It's the, it's the incompetent staff at the VA that has our wa- veterans waiting in line. It's those institutional bureaucrats, those politicians in office for too many years, John McCain and, and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, all of these people who want big government to continue, who want debate, who want controversy. And when I say debate, I don't mean in a healthy way. I mean debate as a stall tactic so they don't have to govern. These people who want government to grind to a halt so that lobbyists can keep donating to their campaign, donating to their PACs. They don't want to really get anything done because when you get things done, you're not needed in government. That's what deep state really is. They hate Donald Trump because he cuts through the red tape and he says, well, let's do this. Let's fire that guy. Let's merge the departments of education and labor. Let's take... SNAP and, and EBT cards and food stamps out from under housing and, ur- ur- housing and urban development and stick it under health and human services that has the infrastructure to service it. But Trump, uh, if you saw the press conference, we did a roundtable last week and Mick Mulvaney, <clears throat> head of the Office of Management and Budget, gave an amazing presentation about making government more efficient. And Mulvaney's presentation went on, I don't know, about 12 minutes or so in 15 minutes. And just in that brief time, you realized how inefficient government was. Terrible, terrible, terribly inefficient. But um, so these people are protesting the deep state, okay? So that's all the deep state. Back to the issue at hand. The, the fentanyl-laced flyers show us that opioids can now be weaponized. Just make no mistake, this is a chemical weapons attack. The delivery method of the chemical weapon being a flyer, fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine, 100 times more potent than morphine. And I'm going to tell you about carfentanil and how it can be used. And that's 10,000 times more potent than morphine. Fentanyl is a chemical, comes in predominantly from China, 100 times more potent than morphine. You've heard about it. It's, uh, they lace heroin with it now. That's why people are dropping dead of overdoses. Chemical weapon being placed onto the medium, a flyer, placed on the windows of police cars. That is a chemical weapons attack. That is a chemical weapons attack. A very short hop from that to ISIS, well, they're being decimated, Al-Qaeda, some random one-off terrorist trying to get a job as a janitor at a school and lacing the kids' books. This this is how bad it is, right? It's even scarier. So there's a uh, report in the Oxford Academic from 2012, the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. This is going back to a 2002 terror attack where Russian special forces raided the Dubrovka theater when Chechen terrorists took it over. We're finding out that they used an aerosol, an aerosol containing carfentanil to knock the terrorists out. Then they went in, shot the terrorists as they were unconscious, removed their suicide vest. Problem was, 
that 125 victims also died. And what the journal says, through a combination of the carfentanil aerosol and inadequate medical treatment following the rescue. But, um, wow. The Russian explanation that an, aeros- that an aerosolized form of fentanyl had been used. Various hypotheses are to, proposed to account for the Russian explanation that an aerosolized form of fentanyl had been used. It was a mixture of fentanyl and the anesthetic gas halothane or fentanyl alone. But those were soon discredited. And later on, blood, clothing, and urine analyses told us that carfentanil and remifentanil were used. Far, far more powerful opioids. Now, this was 2002, 16 years ago. October 26, 2002. How have the terrorists, how have the bad guys, how have rogue nation states figured out how to weaponize these opioids? This really is a national security crisis. This is far beyond just a, a public health emergency, a law enforcement emergency. Opioids and synthetic opioids can now be weaponized. Can you imagine our fentanyl being pumped into a shopping mall, through the duct system, or into a school, into police stations, knocking out the cops, going in and slaughtering them. God forbid the kids in schools. This is a terrifying prospect. And we need to devote far more resources to this libertarian nonsense of, of, whoa, leave drugs alone if you want overdose on fentanyl. Not, not when it can be weaponized. You can't weaponize cocaine. You can't really weaponize heroin. You can't weaponize crack. You can't weaponize weed or alcohol to this degree. But this stuff, the fentanyl, the carfentanil, is so potent that it simply becomes an ingredient in deadly chemical weapons. And for that reason, we really do need to treat this much differently. We need to treat this as a national security emergency. And I mean not just DEA, but FBI, CIA, the Department of Defense, need to all be collaborating, Department of Justice, if they can get their act together, need to all be collaborating on how to stop this threat because as I research this, I have to tell you, I have to tell you the things that keep me awake at night are these low-tech asymmetrical attacks. Doesn't seem like aerosolizing carfentanil is all that difficult to do. You have a basic understanding of chemistry. And if that's the case, this could be one of the most terrifying low-tech asymmetrical attack scenarios I've ever analyzed. few primaries last night around the country. I want to tell you about the ones that were most interesting to me. Well, one of them that's most interesting is probably the least interesting. Mitt Romney won the GOP Senate nomination in Utah. Mitt Romney to me has become John McCain. He even said he wants to be like John Senate. Uh, Mitt Romney uh, earned 73% of the vote against State Representative Mike Kennedy. He only drew, Kennedy only drew about one in four votes. Romney won big, but that was expected. He raised an absolute fortune. And uh, Trump tweeted, big and conclusive win by Mitt Romney. Congratulations. I look forward to working together. There is so much good to do. A great and loving family will be coming to D.C. Now, Trump had to do that. He's trying to extend an olive branch, but Romney's going to be the thorn in Trump's side. The big thorn in Trump's side. I mean, Romney called Trump a fraud and a con man. 
Trump passed them over for Secretary of State and other positions, and they don't like each other. All right, they don't, no matter what Trump says, he's doing the right thing for Republican unity, they don't like each other. And Romney, I believe, is going to go into the Senate with the intention of removing Trump or, or lobbying for the removal of Trump if Dems should win the House. I think the Dems are, are, are done in the midterm, but anything can happen in the next five, six months. If the Dems were to take the House, which I think is highly unlikely, uh, in fact, I think the Republicans are going to pick seats up, Romney, I think, would be a voice to remove Trump in the Senate where he impeached him in the House. But uh, Trump, Romney won, not unexpected, not unexpected. If it was, of course, Orrin Hatch's seat, Hatch is retiring. Romney was also, uh, conventional wisdom would tell us, behind the Evan McMullen debacle to thwart Trump's electoral path in the states of Idaho, Utah, and Arizona, states with large Mormon populations. That failed as well. When they saw Trump was winning, they threw McMullen in as a ringer, hoping to block Trump's electoral path and, and throw it to Hillary. That failed miserably. A really interesting race in New York City's, four, well, New York's 14th congressional district, which is in New York City, covers parts of Queens, parts of the Bronx. Now, these are predominantly English as a second language areas. And uh, they, the, the incumbent was a guy named Joe Crowley, a far left Democrat. He was like a 10 term incumbent or seven-term incumbent. He'd been there 14 to 20 years, I forget exactly, or 10-term. They'd been around 20 years. And a girl named, a woman, girls, 28 years old, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won. She's a democratic socialist who ran on abolishing ICE. She's been down at the border ranting and raving now. The district is far left. The district is predominantly immigrant, um, a lot of illegals, English is, like I said, the second language in these areas. Hard left, hard blue area. But this was also Crowley's race to lose, and he really gave up. The guy didn't show up for a debate, instead sending a surrogate who looked like Ocasio-Cortez. That really offended people from the area. You're running in an area. You're running in an area in, uh, in uh, Queens and the Bronx, just predominantly minority. And you then decide to not show up as the white guy and send a Hispanic female as your surrogate, a Latina. That's a slap in the face. Now, this area, again, would never be a Republican seat. I don't think the Republicans should even waste money on this. Area. I don't think the Republicans should even run a candidate here. It's a waste of money. It'll never be an RC. But I hope the Democrats keep doing this. I hope Democratic voters in the farthest left districts continue to put forward these candidates who are uh, this far left, who are admitted democratic socialists. It shows us the true face of the Democratic Party, just how far left the party has gone. Now, she wants to abolish ICE. She went to the border. She was yelling at ICE agents through the fence. She said, we have families and communities here in the 14th district from Ecuador and Colombia, Bangladesh, Korea, Pakistan. And I see them every day. And many of them are scared about what's going on with my campaign. In terms of immigration, we're trying to say, hey, we got your back. Well, if these people are illegal and you're a U.S. congresswoman or you're elected, which she will be, take an oath to protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America. No, you should have the back of the Department of Homeland Security and the rule of law, not the backs of illegal aliens. And then lastly, we had the South Carolina Republican gubernatorial primary runoff between Henry McMaster and John Warren. Now, McMaster, there had to be a runoff because he didn't get over 50% of the vote in the, in the original primary. He won last night. He won by about six points. 
Seven points. 7.2 points. Back. He won by uh, just over 30, well, just uh, under 30,000 votes, about 26,000 votes. Trump rallied for him. What was interesting is he didn't win in the areas surrounding Greenville, South Carolina, and Charleston, South Carolina. Why was that? Is it that he was rejected by Republicans and was Trump? Well, I don't think so, because he won in the rest of the state. Big, big, big swatches of red over there. This is an open primary state, South Carolina. And I think in these areas, Greenville and Charleston, Democrats and independents voted in the Republican primary against Trump and anyone he supports, rather than vote in the Dem primary for the Dem uh, 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 challenge. Well, actually, don't even know. I guess whoever the Dem was won in the primary. I haven't followed the South Carolina race. Quite honestly, there was no runoff. But uh, what it tells me is that Dems <clears throat> didn't vote, didn't vote in... Uh, or Dems that did vote in their primary. Well, it looks like independents, those who didn't vote in that first primary, might have waited till the Republican runoff to vote against McMaster and against Trump. Now, Trump did a rally there. And the question is, did the rally help McMaster? Was it the rally that both pushed McMaster over the edge with those who weren't going to vote against, those who were solid R's, or... Did the rally energize the Democrats and the independents in an open primary state to vote against anyone aligned with Trump? That's really going to be the question going into the midterms. How energized is the left? Now, I think McMaster handily wins re-election in South Carolina. He became governor after Nikki Haley went over to be UN ambassador. But I'm always really um, interested in watching these open primary states and how things shake out in these cities. Because there's no reason Charleston and Greenville, the Republicans there wouldn't have also gone with McMaster. This tells me that in those cities that have large concentrations of Dems and independents in an open primary state, those Dems and independents voted against Trump. And that's why the opponent, John Warren, picked up as many votes as he did in those areas. So it's going to be very, very interesting to watch going into November. But I have to tell you, McMaster still won. So uncomfortably, essentially the entire middle from north to south, the center of the state of South Carolina went with McMaster by proxy, went with Trump after that rock concert of a rally. And I think that this is going to bode very well for Trump leaning Republicans going into the midterm elections.